0: Good evening everybody, thank you, welcome, welcome to Upworth United Methodist Church. We are thrilled to have you here on this very special day that we've been planning for for a very long time and it's an honor to have you here and all of our friends who are tuning in live online here across Ohio and literally all around the world. Thank you for tuning in and being a part of this very important dialogue through your device, whether it's your phone, your PC, perhaps it's your tablet, we thank you for joining us. Would you join me now as we begin in prayer? Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come from various walks of life, different backgrounds, various cultures, creeds, even belief systems, to come to celebrate each other and how we might work together and build bridges, not chasms, offer hands of friendship, not hatred, and to work together to make this community, this state, and the entire nation a better place. And so we dedicate this time to you, and may everything that we say and do bring honor to your name and to this important purpose of peace and reconciliation. In Jesus' name we pray and believe. Amen. It's my honor to introduce our keynote speaker this afternoon. I met Senator Yuko a number of years ago through uh, the opportunity I had to open the state senate in prayer. And you know how you just meet people and they, you have an instant connection? That's the way it was with Senator Yuko. He's that way with everybody. You know him. He's just a warm, friendly, gracious individual who cares about people. And we just kind of struck up a friendship years ago. And every time I would be at the senate, we would kind of take a few moments to catch up. When I was uh, invited to come to Toledo, he was one of the very first people... That I told, I said, hey, what do you think about Toledo? Should I accept this or not? And he said, oh, be sure the first thing you do, go to Paco's. So you know Emily and I are there every five minutes. So we took his advice. He's, uh, he's been a union organizer for 25 years, and uh, where he, he helped pass landmark legislation for the state of Ohio and for his community in Cleveland. He was elected to the Ohio. House of Representatives, where he served a number of years, and then to the Ohio State Senate, where he has ascended to one of the top leaders in the entire state as the minority leader of the Ohio State Senate. He's a great personal friend of mine and a great leader for the state of Ohio and for our nation. Would you help me give a very warm welcome, please, to Senator Kenny Yuko? Thank you, sir.
1: Thank you, my friend. Thank you. you, Now, do me a favor, don't go too far because I need you for something. <laughs> First of all, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us today. Um, you know, when this guy calls you and says, you want to stop by and, and see a few words to, uh, at my church, you don't hesitate, not for one second. When I see what he did in the state house, when I see the way he carries himself, when I see the message that he delivers in the state house in a room where we rarely get something right, and he was so spot on every time he opened up with prayer, I knew we were on to the right thing. So, my friend, before I even start with my comments, I would like to present to you, from the Ohio Senate, a senatorial citation to recognize the Reverend Dr. Stephen Swisher. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but it just says, I'm pleased to recognize Reverend Dr. Stephen Swisher on your outstanding service to the citizens of Ohio through your work creating dialogue around race and reconciliation you are to be commended for your phenomenal efforts and your commitment to improving the lives of others. And my friend, with tremendous pride, I like to present that to you. you.
0: That means a lot to me. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
1: He truly is something else. You know, I was I was so honored to be here. And then not only did I get the chance to speak and, and talk and share some time and some thoughts with you folks, but I got a tour of the whole facility. And I remember, you know, when he's telling me, he says, I got a chance to go to a church in Toledo. What do you think? So I'm thinking in my mind, he's got a little church in Toledo. He's going to go to it. And that's nice. I pulled into the parking lot. This isn't, this isn't a church. This is like a city. Are you kidding me? You know, in Cleveland, we have a way of talking. I guess we have a Cleveland way of talking. And I'd have to say this, Pastor. This is the type of church where I look at you and say, this is some kind of joint you have here. It's a uh, very 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 impressive and you know he took on a very very tough topic and the timing of it i mean we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic i mean we're, we're kind of on a downside right now so that's one good thing but for the last year and a half we have dealt with things that we've never dealt with we can't say well what did governor rhodes do when he was governor don't know he never had a pandemic or governor voinovich or governor taft governor strickland governor kasich Governor DeWine, God bless him. I <laughs> guess he got the lucky straw, or unlucky straw. But, you know, we've had the pandemic to deal with, and the challenges, and what do we do? What's right? What's wrong? You have your believers, you have your non-believers, you have people who are cooperative and others that are going to rebel against what we've been forced to do. We've had a year of shootings, an unbelievable amount of shootings, all over the country, and for all kinds of reasons. And unfortunately, it seems like the ones who are often the focus of the gunshots are from minority communities, whether it's African-American, whether it's Asian, whether it's attack on our Jewish communities. And this this is a type of racism that has existed for so long in this country, the greatest country in the entire world, and we can't get it right. And I I just, for the life of me, I can't figure out what happened. You know, we have constant confrontations between African-Americans and police officers, not all African-Americans are bad. Not all police officers are good. In fact, I think it's a very, very small minority of each where they get, can get singled out. But unfortunately, when that happens, it casts a very dark cloud over the entire community, whether it's your race or your religion or your history, historical background or whether you're a police officer. We have so many police officers who do such a great job. There are some people who say, well, we need to abolish police departments. We need to defund the police. That's a bad idea, folks. <laughs> we need them. And, and if you're in, ever in trouble and you have to call it, make that 911 call and ask for help, you, you're going to appreciate the fact that we have the policemen that we do here. You know, the Asian women that were killed in Atlanta. You know, was that necessary? Absolutely not. We've, we've witnessed a hateful attacks that took place in both synagogues and churches all over all over our country. This is a place of worship. This is one safe sanctuary where we thought we can always go to and be safe. We knew that God was going to protect us here, and God will protect us. But sometimes when wrong hands get their hands on guns that we have available to us right now, it it changes the story. Now, I'm I'm in my 70s, so I've, I've got to witness an awful lot of things in my life. Some things that we witnessed, were they racist? Yeah, they were. We didn't think about it at the time. I, I, there's a new awareness out there, and that's what we need to talk about. And unfortunately, we don't talk about it enough. You know, there's a quote I heard that Sweden said that it's ironic that America, with its history of injustice to the poor, especially black man and Indian, prides itself on being a Christian nation. And that is so true. You know, I think about back in the old days, back in the 50s, I can remember we, having the first, we were one of the first families with a TV set. Now the TV set was about the size of a Volkswagen Beetle. The, the TV screen was about that big. It was black and white. We watched channels three, five, and eight in Cleveland. And at the end of the day, which was like eleven thirty, we all listened to the national anthem, or you know, as a, as the TV station shut down. But we had some in, interesting shows, didn't we? Uh, one show in particular that I'll, I'll never forget is All in a Family. Archie Bunker and his crew. He called his wife the Dingbat. Called his son in law meathead. I mean, you know, and, and you know, he was he represented a working class man, probably low income, probably low education, probably a lot in, in the Prejudice Department, and unfortunately in that in that era they talked about it quite openly. And I, one show that in particular I remember is when Sammy Davis Jr. moved into the house next door. And he was excited to have somebody move into the house until the neighbor came over to introduce himself. And the first time when they opened the door because a new neighbor was coming over, and there stood Sammy Davis Jr. And the look on Archie Bunker's face. I think the the best part of that show, though, was as the show was ending, and Sammy Davis Jr. planted a great big kiss on Archie's cheek, and the expression on his face is one I'll never forget. You know, that's kind of what it was like back in those days. It was a little bit different, you know, Then I think about the Rat Pack playing in the 50s. And, you know, we we used to play their music on the record players. You know, some of the kids, when I talk about record players at school, they say, what? Talk about 8-track players, what? Talk about cassette players, what? What are you talking about? Nothing. I make this stuff up. Believe me, it's not true. But we have the Rat Pack. Everyone knows the Rat Pack. Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, and once again, your friend, Sammy Davis Jr. So... Let's think about it. They owned Las Vegas Boulevard. There wasn't a single casino that didn't beg for them to come by and entertain on their stages. They sold out every single show that they had. When they got done singing and dancing and entertaining, they went out in the casinos and they gambled with everybody else. And at the end of the night, when they finally got tired, Frank Sinatra went to the best suite each hotel had. Dean Martin went to the best suite each hotel had. Sammy Davis Jr. took a taxi cab to old Las Vegas where he slept in one of the cheap motels that had assigned Negroes only because he wasn't allowed. He wasn't welcome in the very same casinos that he was their number one top entertainer. It was kind of sad, and, and, it, and it took way too long, but eventually Frank Sinatra stood up and told the people that they will not entertain there unless Sammy Davis Jr. gets to sleep there. That took courage back in those days, and we need that type of courage now. You know, we had a theater in the round located. It's called the Front Row Theater, not five minutes from where Pam and I live right now. It's no longer there. But the very first night was a very special night. We had a brand-new theater. We're going to bring in live Las Vegas-style entertainment. And the first night, the show was going to be Sammy Davis Jr. And I had tickets, and I, and I sat there in an eager anticipation, and we waited almost two hours before they finally brought him out. And they brought him out, and the theater was a decent size. I think that evening when they brought Sammy Davis Jr. out, there were more police officers than they had people in the audience, and it was a sold-out crowd. And why? Because someone called the front-row theater and said that if Sammy Davis Jr., and using words that I'm not going to use up here, if he, if he went on stage, he would be dead by the end of the show. He was not welcome. Now, fortunately for Sammy Davis Jr., he thanked the nice policemen, told them how good they looked, but told them to get the heck off the stage because he couldn't see his audience. And he performed for about three hours that night. And, in fact, when, when, when I can remember the first lady who had the nerve to start walking down the aisle to get a closer shot with her camera. That's something that goes like a cell phone only, so it was a separate unit back in those days. <laughs> thought I might have to explain that. I don't know. I went to go take a picture, and the policeman came running down and said, no pictures. And Sammy Davis Jr. said, stop right there. You, you are all welcome to take pictures. In fact, he invited her up on stage and he had the one of the guy from the orchestra pit take her picture with him. You know, and, and that's just the way Sammy Davis Jr. was. And I thought, you know, how, how classy that was. And that kind of told me a message that, number one, we are all equal. I don't care if you're a superstar or if you're from you know the east side of Cleveland and, you're, and you pay a lot of money to go see a show, it's worth it. You know, I think about our military. In our military, we had a special unit called the Buffalo Soldiers. You would think that it was an extreme honor to serve in, as a Buffalo soldier. But you know what it really was? It was a place where they can put African-Americans who wanted to serve our country. Think about it. People who actually wanted to serve our country in a time of war. And we had to say, okay, where are we going to put these people? Where are we going to put them? We'll, we'll make them of their own unit, right? Who, got, who, who do you think got the worst battles to fight? And God bless them, because so many of them came back. And, and to this day, some of them are still around Our our former neighbor who just died about two years ago is Harrison Dillard. He was very active with the Buffalo Soldiers. And it wasn't too long ago we we honored him. We made July 8th every single year Harrison Dillard Day in Ohio because he received two gold medals in the 1948 World Olympics and two more gold medals in 1952. And we honored him with that reward and his family threw him a party, and I actually got to meet about a half a dozen Buffalo soldiers. They're all in their 90s, but first-class gentlemen, and all they could talk about was what an honor it was to serve our country. You know, you think about professional sports. You think about what we turn on TV today and what you see. Is there racism in professional sports? I don't think so. I mean, you know, almost most of the teams are, are people of color of some sort. And so you think you can't possibly be, but... Think about when Jackie Robinson came came forward the first time. When when the, when the first owner had the guts to stand up and tell Jackie Robinson, I want you to play for my team. And again, he couldn't sleep in the same hotels that the rest of his teammates slept in. He couldn't eat in the same restaurants that his fellow teammates ate in, lunch dinners in. Why? Because he was an African-American and they weren't welcome. And that was kind of sad. You know, I... I often think about what, what they had to put up with back in those days, with name-calling and everything else like that, but that they survived. You know, I, I think about, it and we've seen it, not so much up here at north, but down in south, and into, to what I'm hearing, it still exists, and that's signage, signage. We still have signs that say whites only. We still have signs that say no blacks allowed. And to this day, for life for me, I can't understand why it's still permitted. We're finally starting to take down some of those rebel flags and some of those rebels, rebel statues, it's about time. You know, perhaps President John F. Kennedy said it best when he simply said, there are no white or colored signs on the foxholes or graveyards of battle. And that's the truth. You know, let's, let's rep recognize everybody for what they are. They're individuals. They're all children of God. And in some cases, they're war heroes. Now, like I said, before we had the TV, which I kind of described, we had radios. And back in the days before, I guess before I was, I was born in 1950, but my mom Talked about her, her mom and dad listening to the radio and watch, listening to the shows. We had Amos and Andy. We had Moms Mabley with her comedy hour. Now, back in those days, it was just considered funny. By today's standards, we'll look back and we'll say, my God, that was racist. How did that even exist? But the fact was, it really did. So may, maybe we're getting there finally. Back in the 50s, and again, I made reference to record players. They don't have them anymore, but uh, I think they are making a comeback. Rock and roll was making his his mark known. But we had singers like Frankie Avalon, Dion, Ricky Nelson, Bobby Rydell, Paul Anka, and of course Elvis Presley. If you notice one thing, they were all young white men at the time. Then came the 60s, and a brand new style of music appeared. Four Tops, Temptations, we had uh, uh, Supremes, James Brown, James and his Flames. We had Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. And you know what? Everybody embraced that music. Everybody danced to that music. Everybody accepted that music. And I thought, wow, maybe, maybe we're finally getting there. Yet we still had songs like Janice E. on Society Child, where a mother has to tell her daughter, can't, can't date that guy. Why? Because he's not our kind. So she was dating an African-American, but that was totally unacceptable, and they actually wrote a song about it that became a hit song. But here in 2021, you turn on TV... You'll often see TV shows and especially commercials featuring mixed couples. So maybe, just maybe, we're making progress. And then we heard stories about the young African-American gentleman who was 6'10", 385 pounds, and he can block or tackle with the best of them. Colleges recruited him. They gave him four years of college education. He graduated with a degree. But guess what? That young man can't read. They just put him through the system because he was a good football player. And my question is, did we do that gentleman any good? And the answer is no, we didn't. Back in the 60s, we saw numerous protests and riots. There were anti-war protests against our involvement with Vietnam, and we had race riots that popped up all over the country. In Washington, D.C., they were infamous. Protesters took to the streets. Martin Luther King Jr. and so many others tried to get their messages heard, and those Messages, opportunities were often disrupted. In Cleveland, we had the Glenville neighborhood riots. The mayor was forced to call on the National Guard to assist in controlling the riots. People were killed. People were shot. Homes were burnt down. I mean, you're talking millions of dollars of damage inflicted. And for what? In Cincinnati, a colleague of mine right now, Senator Cecil Thomas, he was a police officer back in the 1990s when they had their civil unrest in Cincinnati. He was a leader. He was an African American. He was a police officer, but he was loved and respected. So the mayor tapped him to head up a task force and a commission assigned to addressing community and police relations. I think he did a great job. I think he's. A, I think he was probably the best person for that job, and he really, he really came through. But the question remains. Oh, of course, I want to talk about the Watts riots in Los Angeles. I mean, that cost caught international attention, and not in a good way. If, if we're known for anything in the United States, don't let it be to watch riots. Don't watch the way we mistreated human beings and the abuse that was passed on to so many people. That is absolutely unacceptable. And the question that remains is, what impact did these riots in Washington and Cleveland, Cincinnati, and Los Angeles really have? And the fact is, probably very little. In fact, practically nothing at all. Racism continues until even today. In fact, it's probably getting as ugly as it can ever been. Millions of dollars in elected property damage, lives being lost, people being injured, families being devastated. We wound up with a broken criminal justice system that needs so much repair. And as a Senate minority leader, I can tell you, we're trying. It's not easy. We have have an overcrowded prison system. We have a Comprising mostly of African-Americans, by the way, who are are sentenced, I think, unjustly. I think they're targeted by our system. And I I think that has got to stop. And it's got to stop now. Racial profiling continues almost in every community. Police and African-American relationships continue to look for some resolution. But yet people don't want to talk about it. Prior to my legislative career, I served as a union organizer for 25 years, I fought for better wages, affordable health care, the right to retire with dignity, thanks to our unions, non-discrimination, and safe working environment, where hard-working women and men could go to work during the day, but most importantly, return home to their families at the end of their shift. Now, as a member of the Ohio General Assembly, eight years as a state representative, and now my seventh year as a state senator, I'm fighting for the same things. You know, we've introduced bills to increase minimum wage, so people can earn a living wage, health care. Well, my Republican colleagues, colleagues call it Obamacare, almost in a mockery. We call it affordable health care because that's what we ask for. Make sure that everyone has access to affordable health care. That's what we want in life. We want equality for everybody, whether we're talking about wages, job opportunities, where you live, who you love. But this is something that's denied to many, and we've got to stop this. As I was preparing for my transition from the, the labor movement, to the, to the State House, I did, I did a lot of research. I looked at what committees we had, who served on those committees, where they were from, what kind of bills they were passing. And I came to a conclusion that I started talking about the minute I got sworn in the office. And it's very simple. We legislate by zip code. We educate by zip code. And we incarcerate by zip code. And ladies and gentlemen, that has got to stop. It's got to stop. I have young men living in East Cleveland, Ohio who don't stand a chance. We don't prepare them for college, we prepare them for prison. And that, that that is unacceptable. We have to do better. Black communities continue to exist with poor schools, less than adequate housing, low paying jobs, if they have jobs at all, high crime, gang activities, infrastructure in dire need of repair and that, like I said, we, we've got to change, and, and we're, it's hard. It's very, very hard. We need afternoons like this where we can talk about it and, and put these facts on the table, and I have to have you folks go home and talk to your family and friends about this. Let them know that, you know what, this is the way some people in America live, and it's unacceptable, and we're not going to tolerate it. Dual standards often apply not to just to African Americans, too, because we have Asian Americans... You know, they've been going through their issues lately. And Pacific Islanders, our Jewish population, those living in our Hispanic neighborhoods, Indian and Muslim populations, LGBTQ people, as well as our immigrants. They're all suffering because of racism. Jesse Jackson once said our nation is a rainbow, red, yellow, brown, black, and white. And we're all precious in God's sight. Amen to that. Our nation has a long history of dealing with this topic, starting with the Civil War, even though racism existed even long before the Civil War. Look at the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. History was repeated with the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Civil rights in our country took a big blow with the assassinations of folks like Reverend Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. Senator Bobby Kennedy was assassinated as he campaigned to be the next president of our United States back in 1968. Despite all these senseless deaths, progress in addressing these disparities continue to falter. Throughout my political career, I've had often been associated with the following quote. One, I, I might be in the wrong place, Pastor. I'm going to tell you the truth, but I stole it. I heard it from somebody, and I wrote the quote down, but I didn't remember to write down who said it, so I can't give anybody credit. So, and I've said it so many times. Everyone's saying, well, Kenny Yuko once said. that's said, no, I, I stole it. I, I'll be honest with you. I'm in church. Please forgive me. Um, but it's very simple. It says our children make up 30% of our population, yet they're 100% of our future. You know what that means? That means we have an obligation to prepare these kids because guess what? They're going to take care of us one day. <laughs> we have to do this. We have to take care of them. And, and we're failing. We decide we're going to pick and choose what little child gets a good education and which one doesn't. Which one, if he gets sick, will have access to a good hospital for medical treatment. And which one doesn't? Which one gets to live in a nice home, a safe home, free from crime and danger? But again, that's just not right. Senator, Senator Ted Kennedy said strong schools are important to our future as the strong defense is. We invest a lot of money in our defense, but we spend very, very little on our children. Too many of our urban school districts and students continue to be shortchanged. School takeovers by the state, no broadband service, and, and failing school, school districts. That's really just unacceptable. Every single child we have to take care of. Recent events going back a couple of years verify that racism is still alive. Police and African-American confrontations often resulting in tragedy. Tragic events often target specific groups. And again, as I indicated before, the blacks, Asian-Americans, Pacific Islanders, Jews, Hispanics, gays, and immigrants. Gun violence, much, much like we witnessed here in Ohio and Dayton. It'll be two years in August, when nine people were killed in a matter of seconds, and just—I mean—I can remember getting that phone call from the mayor, Nan Whaley, and said, "Can you believe what happened in my city?" I remember getting a phone call from the governor, saying, "Senator, I'm going to go to Dayton to speak to the people the day after the shooting. He invited me to go with him. Unfortunately, I was in a conference out of state and I couldn't go. He went down there and he called me back that night and he says," I said, how'd it go? He said, it didn't. Couldn't speak. Why not? He said, people wouldn't let me. They were screaming, do something, do something, do something, do something. He says, Kenny, we have to do something. He put together a 17-point plan. He shared it with me. I had I to tell him right off the bat, eight of them I can't agree with because what, you're, what you've done is you've significantly increased prison time for people. And, Governor, make no mistake, they will be people of color. I can't stand back and say I endorse this. There's no way. I can't do it. I won't do it. So we cut back and we cut back and we cut back. And we really cut back to two. One was, I mean, just so off the board it doesn't even count. But the other one, it says we need background checks. So under his plan, if I go and buy a gun and the gun owner's shop says, do you want a background check? And if I'm clean, I'm clean. I'll I'll go through a background check. I don't care. But if my background isn't clean, I just say, no, thanks. And they say, okay, no problem. Here's your gun. It's that simple. So what I did was I went out and I had a button made. It said, do something. I gave one to the governor, gave one to the Senate president, gave one to the Speaker of the House. And we passed out about 5,000 of these already. And by the way, Pastor, I got some. and I'll give you in case you have some friends who want some. Uh, they're, They're more than welcome to them. That's our message. It's very simple. We have to do something. And we haven't done it so far. But where do we start? I mean, it's a task that's unbelievable. It covers the entire state. Actually, it covers the entire country. But what you'll hear today is a great place to start. You folks are here. You folks are listening. You folks are going to share this message with your family and friends. Legislation addressing problems with racism are being heard in general assemblies all over the country. Unfortunately, they're not being passed in Ohio, though, Senator Herschel Craig from Columbus and Senator Sandra Williams from Cleveland introduced a Senate concurrent resolution number four, which would declare racism as a public health crisis and promote racial equality. We're waiting for the president to bring it up for a vote. Senate Bill 76 introduced by Senator Craig again and Senator Brenner establishes Juneteenth as a legal holiday with its origins back to Galveston, Texas, We're back in your hometown, basically. Juneteenth is a celebration of the day in which the final enslaved people in the United States were finally set free. And unfortunately, as quickly as we started talking about racism within the last year, I would say it lasted about a week, all of a sudden all that conversation was quieted down, and we took on different issues, issues that I'm not too proud of. We, we, need, we need positive changes, and, and we're just not getting the job done. You know, the new legislation that are introduced to limit Ohioans' ability to protest, that's what we're dealing with. It's a move that would likely have a disproportionate impact on people of color who are often at the forefront of these protest movements. And like, I'm thinking about the Black Lives Matter. These aren't violent people. These are frustrated people. These are people that don't, don't want to fight. They, they want to help. They don't, they don't want to be ignored. They want to be recognized. It's very, very simple. But what else do we get? We get Senate Bill 16, Senator Schaefer, adding to the criminal penalties for vandalizing or even blocking traffic when you're, if you're doing a protest march. We don't need this. Senate Bill 41, again, Senator Schaefer, criminalizing, vandalizing public properties. It's already in the books. We can't do that. But this one increases the penalties, so bad idea. House Bill 22, Represents, Larry Wilkins, criminalizes the failure to follow orders. So if a police officer tells you to stop and you keep marching, you can be under arrest. Again, we don't need this. And in another bill, House Bill 109, increases the penalties for assault, vandalism, and harassment while rioting. And then in the midst of this pandemic, when everything is wrong and disproportionately affecting people of color in particular, we now have a bill that was introduced in the Ohio House that would make it more difficult to access our SNAP benefits, providing food on the tables for our families. Senate Bill 17, sponsored by Senator Schaefer, creates photo ID requirements for SNAP beneficiaries, even though multiple people in a single household are eligible to use that SNAP card. And in the aftermath of one of the most important presidential elections of our times, we have seen another bill, House Bill 285, representative sites to suppress voting, targeting, again, people of color. So where's the good news? When's this guy going to start talking about something good? Well, I guess we can look back, most recently, when we elected Senator Barack Obama from Illinois and made him our president. And what a great day in America that was. And so many Americans thought that this election was impossible. But President Barack Obama, with firm commitment to get his message out there, did just that, proved to be the most valuable leader that we hoped for and prayed for, and he was duly elected. And then, guess what? We got got a bargain, because we not only got a new president, we got a new first lady. And Michelle Obama, what can I say? I mean, from the time they danced, that first dance at his inauguration to the time she left office, nothing but total class. You know, I think what I liked best about her was a very simple statement. When they go low, we'll go high. And now we have a new vice president for the United States, and that's exciting, too. Kamala Harris, who presents herself in the same manner. Now now picture this. Just imagine some eight-year-old girl and a little African-American girl from Toledo, Ohio, and she wakes up one morning and goes to her mother and says, Mom, one day I want to be president of the United States. Can't she? You know what? Three simple words. Yes, she can. And I pray to God that I live long enough to see that happen. God bless her. Black Lives Matter. We have signs all over, but signs don't, don't get the job done. We, we have to do more. I, I have an end racism sign in my front yard. It's been there over a year. I've got to do more. We all have to do more. We have to find ways that we can reach across our communities for anybody who's feeling slighted and, and justifiably because the facts speak for themselves. You know, we, we've got to do a better job than what we've done from our major cities to our small towns we continually put guns in the wrong hands, and the results are disastrous. Our churches, our temples, our synagogues are all united with their messaging. And, of course, here in Toledo, we have Pastor Stephen Swisher, and God bless him. You know, I, I loved every session day when the president invited Pastor Swisher up to the podium to lead us in prayer. Why? Because I knew for those minutes when he offered his prayer prayer, that it was a message that hopefully 33 senators were listening to, believing in, and becoming dedicated to what he was asking us to do, and that was represent the people as God would. And we have so many other people, clergy members and, and parishioners. That's so, so nice. We've had peaceful protests. We've had peaceful rallies and people engaging in meaningful conversations. Much like what we're having here today, this is what it takes. It doesn't take people shooting people. It doesn't take police doing barricades. You know, legislatively, we are recognizing Juneteenth and Poindexter Village in Columbus. Juneteenth, I never heard of until recently. I can assure you, I represent a lot of black communities. Our our residents are thrilled, absolutely thrilled. They said they never thought in their lifetime they would live long enough to see Juneteenth get recognized as a holiday, and we're working on it. Poindexter Village was a, was a village they created in Columbus, once again, for African-Americans. It was because they liked African-Americans and they wanted to treat them to a nice... No, because they wanted to keep them all together in one spot, so whatever purpose is served. But after a while, and it's been a long while, people started moving out. People moved to the suburbs. There were a lot of vacancies. The place got run down. The buildings got run down, but not the history, not the memories, not what it meant to the people of color from Columbus. And God bless Senator Herschel Craig. Once again he came he came to the fight and he fought to save Poindexter Village and, and bring some valuable dollars. We're gonna restore that village and once again let it represent the African American community with a very proud African American history. We need also to invest in our poorest communities. I represent East Cleveland. It's the fourth poorest city of that size in America. It's embarrassing I've had the governor up there several times. We're doing some great things. When, when the African American community wasn't getting vaccinated, I said, "Governor, we need vaccinations in East Cleveland." Yeah, they can go right down the street, but they're not doing it. Let's bring the vaccinations. So he did. Our, our students were told we, we can't because of the pandemic. We can't teach you at school. We're going to teach you from home, though. So get out your iPad. There's no broadband service in East Cleveland. How? What, what's an iPad going to do? There's nothing to connect it to. So that didn't work out very well. But Governor DeWine came back, and and again, we brought broadband to East Cleveland. But, you know, we still have buildings that should be torn down. I I pray to God that one day when a strong breeze, or even a weak breeze, or a butterfly flying over, it's going to fly by, and something's going to touch that building. It's just going to come crumbling down so we can get it out of there. You know, we've had women that have been kidnapped, beaten, raped, murdered, and left to die in vacant homes. And who finds them? The kids when they go in there to play. Not, not a good idea. You know, when Governor DeWine was first elected governor, he called me up and he says, I want to work with you. I want to help you. Give me your top three priorities of things that you want me to help you with. I said, Governor, that's very simple. Number one is East Cleveland. Number two, it's East Cleveland. And number three, Governor, please, it's East Cleveland. We have a lot of work to do in we're going to make it happen. Our entire country that we have has got to wake up and realize that everyone deserves the way of life that when our parents came over from the old country, they came over for that better life. We need to provide that to every single person living here. We are constantly broadcasting stories of special deeds and accomplishments, and I was kind of happy because just very so recently, I picked up my newspapers. This is from a couple days ago. Together in faith, they had a day of prayer in in my Senate district, and they invited seven different religions represented by seven different ministers and all their parishioners to come down and say prayer all day for our country. Same paper, Lake County, Diversity and Inclusion Business Council Seeks Local Business Support. Why? Because they feel like if you're an African-American business, you're not going to be eligible for certain grants or loans or whatnot, as opposed to the white businesses, so forth. You're going to get the better deals and everything else, and that's unacceptable. Yesterday, the newspaper came out. City of Columbus reaches $10 million. Oh, not, that's another one, sorry. Well, that's another, we're not going to even go there. Uh, this one I want to show you. This is kind of, kind of interesting. Ohio-born twins from the east side of Cleveland up in Twinsburg they're both doctors, and they, they're battling the fact that we are entrenched with racism in medicine. So you know what they did? They, they worked really hard. They formed a commission that's going to get the hospital's attention. They're getting it. They got money to fund it. They're actually giving away credits, continuing education credits for those who follow this program. And they've co-founded the Institute for Anti-Racism in Medicine. And it's finally getting recognized. But who thought that was going to happen? And I told the pastor before, Otto Beatty, a former state representative, a lawyer, um, married to Congresswoman Joyce Beatty right now. Uh, but, but his real champion ideas, when, when he was a state rep, he saw the very same things that I saw. And he set out to do something about it. He fought through his law company to, uh, to take on the minority businesses that were being ignored and neglected and get a grip on the white-owned businesses that held all the lucrative government contracts. And he spent the entire rest of his life advocating for minority-owned businesses and the disadvantaged. And God bless him. We need more people like Otto Beatty. So you, the newspapers aren't all about gloom and doom. There's a lot of good, interesting stories in there. And I just want to make sure we, we shared those with you. Um, other recent articles include a story about uh, young kids that have done well. At, when the Cleveland Browns announced their first draft pick last week or two weeks ago, they invited a young girl up to the stage. She was from Shaw High School in East Cleveland. And she walked up there like she owned that stage. She walked down that runway, she walked right up to the podium and said, The Cleveland Browns with their first draft pick. And I mean, she was just so pumped up. And the very next day, Pam and I got to go to Shaw High School in East Cleveland. Because the NFL and the Cleveland Browns were going to tear down their football stadium, which was a joke, and build them a brand new state-of-the-art football stadium in East Cleveland. And I could not have been happier. That's what we need. Another uh, thing I wanted to talk about was the fact that if, if we're going to bring this community of ours together, our state of Ohio together, our country together, we have to do it in prayer. Why? Because it's the most powerful thing we can do. You know, I can remember 2016, I went to the doctor because I had this growth on my neck and I couldn't figure out what it was. All I know is I have a hard time buttoning my shirt in the morning. Doctor said, you have cancer. You need to have surgery, you need chemo, you need radiation. I said, okay. Well, the governor had just appointed me, and this is going to be in the summertime, and the governor had just appointed me to work on two task forces I would work all summer. And my office was already getting bombarded with people who wanted to meet with me to discuss those task force. And they said, you're not going to be around to serve on that. So you need to, to put a message out there that you're going to be unavailable because you have a little health crisis. So I did. I said, I'm going to be gone for a little bit this summer. I'm going to have to go through a little surgery and a little radiation and a little chemo. And I said, and here's where most people will say, please pray for me. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to ask you to please pray but pray for everybody I'm trying to help. I'll be okay. I just know I will. But help, pray for those who I've been trying to fight for because they need the help. And you know what? I started getting bombarded with questions. And they told me, you know what? We're not, we're not listening to you. We're going to keep praying for you anyway. And God bless them because you know what? I came through with flying colors because, I, because of the prayers. I make no doubt about that. <laughs> Pastor Swisher, Thank you for this opportunity. I I, am so honored to be here to share my thoughts with your friends. We must remain vigilant what's happening in this crazy world, because make no mistake, it is crazy. We must all do our parts to make this place better. And as Robert F. Kennedy once said, a revolution is coming. A revolution which will be peaceful if we are wise enough, compassionate if we care enough, successful if we are fortunate enough. But a revolution is coming, whether we will it or not. We can affect this character, but we can't alter its course. So to all of you in the audience, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. You've been most kind, and I want to leave you with just a couple of final thoughts that I have shared in Columbus since 2005. Where there is prejudice, let us bring acceptance. Where there is frustration, let us bring hope. Where there is meanness, let us bring kindness. Where there is anger let us bring peace, and where there is hatred, let us bring love. Thank you very much, and God bless you all. That's for you.
0: Thank you, Mrs. being with us as well. Now we will shift to our panel discussion, and let me briefly introduce our panelists who have come here from various parts of the state and nation. Uh, Reverend Dr. Kalibachali is the director of Justice Ministries for the Great Plains Conference, which is Kansas and Nebraska for the United Methodist Church. He uh, flew in last night. He and I have known each other for 15 years. We served together at Lover's Lane United Methodist Church in Dallas, Texas. At the time, it was the third largest United Methodist Church in the country, 6,000 members. And we worked together every single day. I was with him as he was dating his wife, who is now the senior pastor of um, of a notable church in Wichita, Kansas. And I've seen them have a beautiful daughter, and um, I've seen his ministry grow. He will soon take the leadership as senior pastor of another great church in Wichita. Um, he's just uh, a great leader for the denomination. He was recently elected as a part of the delegation for General Conference from the Great Plains uh, area. Would you help me welcome, please, Dr. Kelly? Reverend Donetta Peaks has been a a minister and a leader in our conference, the West Ohio Conference, for many, many years. She started a a brand new church start at Easton Town Center, brand new, fresh opportunity to to bring people into a church at the mall. That was very, very cool. She um, later moved on to recently, within the last couple of years, become the director of the Office of Ministry for the West Ohio Conference based in Columbus, which means she helps oversee 1,200 pastors across the state in terms of um, their qualifications, etc., She has a terrific staff there in Columbus, but uh, she also was a part of my church in East Columbus, Aetna United Methodist Church, as often as she could be. We became the, um, the fastest-growing Methodist church in Ohio for three years in a row, partly because of her friendship and her leadership. Help me welcome, please, Reverend Annetta Peaks. Now, Dr. Andrew Sung Park and I have known each other for so many years, I'm not going to even say how many years it is, because it's a very, very long time. He was my first professor of systematic theology. He um, is the author of many books. He is is respected all around the world as a noted systematic theologian. He represents the Korean community, but he also represents the faith community. Um, One of his very first um, books was called The Wounded Heart of God, where he talks about this concept of Han, uh, which is a Korean concept about God suffering when we suffer. It was a groundbreaking work. Uh, He's respected all around the world, and he's a mentor to me for many, many years, and I'm just so grateful that he is here from United Theological Seminary in Dayton, Ohio. Would you help me give a welcome to Dr. Andrew Sung Park? All right, uh, Dr. Charlie, would you begin with a few comments, and then we'll go to Reverend Peaks and Dr. Park, and uh, then we'll take questions.
2: Thank you, and uh, it's, it's great to be here. Um, uh, I was telling Steve how blessed you all have um, to have him as your pastor. He's a great uh, disciple of Jesus Christ, a great leader, and, and just honored to be here. And so my, my first comments um, that I would like to share tonight, my uh, perspectives of uh, the issue of race and reconciliation is shaped by the example of uh, South Africa uh, with uh, particularly the leadership that uh, the Archbishop Desmond Tutu uh, played. Each time there is racial violence, as we have seen it throughout uh, the history of the United States, the community or the country has options. And one of those options uh, maybe uh, is to avoid and just say, let's not talk about it. Eventually, things will just get better. So that's one option, or that's one scenario. Another scenario is those who were once uh, oppressed, brutalized, uh, and treated so unfairly to take an opportunity and revenge. That's also another option. Another option could be um, let's just fix all the laws. Let's make it right. So you, uh, and the senator has talked a lot of, about that, where you, you work so hard, and I, I believe you, you need to change the laws. But oftentimes, people think, just because we change the laws, everything is right. Unfortunately, what we have seen in the United States in the recent years that has not been the case. And, I, and to me, that's where the church has missed an opportunity to to serve and lead. Because when you change laws, when you do all these other things, oftentimes we do that by, you know, there is a lot of uh, words fighting. There is a lot of debate, you know. And, and when you think about a debate... Oftentimes, to debate comes down to, I need to shoot down your arguments to show how stupid you are so that my idea, my reasoning can be at the top. This, this is not something new. Uh, in the 17th, 18th century with the, uh, philosophers uh, like uh, René Descartes who was a French philosopher, you can hear my French there. Uh, The whole idea of a cogito ego sum, je pense donc je suis. I think, therefore I am. In other words, anything else doesn't matter. All all that matters is how I think and what I think. So the affordable care is not a big deal because I don't think it is. Even, Even though it helps so many, But I don't think it is. So that school of thought has gone on for too long. But there is another way to think about it. John Mbiti, for instance, a Kenyan theologian, says, I am as an individual because we are as a community here. And because we are as a community, therefore I am. This goes, uh, 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 Dr. Andrew, to your idea of when one of us suffers, we are all suffering. And we can't address issues in the concept of this uh, uh, community uh, with debate. Instead, we can do that through dialogue. Now, when you talk about dialogue, dialogue doesn't mean you have people uh you know, I'm originally from Zambia, grew up in the Congo and educated in Zimbabwe and Dallas and Missouri. If, if you say dialogue, it's not about me speaking to people only who understand me. We're having a dialogue tonight because we have a politician here, we have ministers here, we have administrators of the church, we have academia, and that's why we're having a dialogue and a dialogue is not about how eloquent you can be a dialogue begins by how well we can listen and, and and so i ask myself in the united states we have been fighting to make the laws to change the law and i ask myself how many times have we taken time to have a dialogue in south africa Blacks of Africa <coughs> in particular had to choose whether they could lead by having a dialogue or whether they could use violence to make things right that way, motivated by racial violence. When will the time come in the United States when the church will say, we will take the leadership role and create a sacred environment when we can have dialogue, when we can hear each other's stories as painful as those stories can be. You know what? Until we hear the stories of brokenness, until we hear the painful stories, sometimes we cannot imagine what a peaceful future could look like. And at and, and times... At the intersection of our brokenness, intersection of our stories of brokenness and and, and, and painful stories, at that intersection is where we find dialogue and is where we find God's peace. Not peace because of pity, but peace because of justice. And, And so I challenge all of us, particularly people of faith in this country, to create space for dialogue. Dialogue not where we dictate how people should tell their stories. But dialogue when we are, we are willing. We are willing and we are humble enough. Humble enough to listen. To hear. You know Micah 6.8 says what does the Lord require of you but to do justice. To love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We can do all the justice, we can do all these debates, but do we have the humility, the meekness, as Matthew says, to listen to the stories, especially the stories of the most vulnerable among us. The most vulnerable in our society. And, 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 and are we willing to take that experience to begin to look at the scripture, to begin to look at reality? Not because we think, therefore we are, but because of their realities. Can that reality help us see scripture and the newspaper in a different way? Gusto Gonzalez, the Cuban theologian, says, we shouldn't ask what the Bible says about the poor. Instead, we should ask, what do the, ba- the poor find in the Bible that is good news for the rest of us? Friends, what do the people who are suffering from violence, from poverty, what do they find in the Bible that is good news for, uh, for all of us? What do the Asians who were killed in Atlanta, what do the African-American men kill somewhere else in Atlanta and other places, what do their families and these uh, beautiful people, what do they find in the Bible that is good news for the rest of us? Are we willing to listen? Are we humble enough to allow these stories to transform our own story? And so I invite you for a dialogue with humility, but also with a willingness to listen. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much. So, giving honor to God, it's a privilege to be here today. Um, thank you to Dr. Stephen Swisher and to the Epworth Church and the Toledo community for. Um, opening up to this dialogue, Senator Yuko, I really appreciate your words. very helpful, and Dr. Chali and both Dr. Park, we just appreciate your wisdom and being able to lend it to this conversation. So thank you all i'd just like to lift up um, some of the um, things that have already been addressed from a, a different perspective, and it 's so helpful to hear all of the challenges that we have in front of us. And some challenges are directly related to racism and to the disparities that it causes. And then the other side of that is um, helping us to understand that if we're going to um, really approach racism and being able to um, eradicate it, that we've got to really dig deep into understanding other people, people who are not like us, and then moving into a place of acceptance. And it takes a long time to do that work. I think there, the studies show that it's about an hour a week to for a whole year of, of really embracing somebody to move a little bit. So for all of us, we've got to continue to have these conversations to continue to engage um, cultures that are not like our own so that we can learn them, understand them, and accept them. (coughs) And the more that we do that, the more we'll be in a position to be able to help others and to be able to to navigate our way through their challenges. So... (coughs) (laughs) Sorry, I have a little flower allergy. (laughs) But we really appreciate just this opportunity. And so as we look at our cultural competency and our ability to um, navigate our way forward, we encourage you to just continue to do this work reading, um, engaging other cultures, having conversations, learning them so that you can embrace them and really be able to accept them. And as we do that, as we really engage people, we begin to learn that we're more alike than we are different. And when we really understand our similarities, um, we're less likely to mistreat people who are like us. So, I just encourage you to continue these kinds of conversations and other opportunities that allow you to engage cultures and people so that we can all be stronger and know each other better and to be able to lift one another up as we um, continue to do this important work and to help heal our communities and our nation and our world. So thank you for this privilege and I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Park.
4: First of all, uh, thank you very much for your coming, all of you. And Dr. Swisher, we are just so proud of you, especially United Theological Seminary. He's our alum, well-known, and also Dr. Reverend Picks. It's a, she she, she re educate people. She ordained people, in a way. Sorry. <laughs> it's a good combination. I'm, just, I'm, so, I'm proud of them, personally. And also, I know how precious time is. You are allowing for this. You look sane to me, because <laughs> this topic is a difficult topic. In spite of that, you are here. Thank you. And I will tell you one thing. You will be all All right. And relax, because God is alive, so don't despair, don't depress. And Senator Yoko, I appreciate your message. I can see your warm and kind Christian heart. And Thank you. And I don't know, honor that, really, that what you said is very important. Let's see. I want to just uh, say this, uh, if you're ready, do you see this uh, uh, iceberg human being like an iceberg? We have uh, three tiers. one is mind mind is a tip of an iceberg, one tenth of an iceberg, and then spirit that's a nine tenths our spirit and then in other words, body body is a manifestation of a mind and spirit. According to the Bible, we have a three mind, body, spirit. What moves people? Not the mind. Mind controls only one tenth of our awareness. Nine tenths is a spirit. Freud calls unconsciousness. It's a subconscious. It's submerged under the water. so We cannot see it. But that should be moved. To defeat racism, we have to work on all three levels. Physical, mental, spiritual. But as a senator mentioned, prayer is a realm of a spirit. Without changing spirit, this country will suffer from racism, sexism, classism, all kinds of discriminations. So crucial is a church work. And I appreciate all the senators and congress people working for changing all policies, but that's all external. You have to go deeper. Unless people really change their heart, they do many different things through their prejudice, their racial myth, stereotypes. We all have a stereotypes. We have to remove them. So I'm going to just briefly say this. I know time is up. I actually have one full paper. (laughs) If you're interested, you can read this. I can send it to you. Briefly, I mentioned uh, physical level. The second, second diagram, please. Next one. Or oh, is it the only one, maybe? Oh, okay. I, okay, that's all. I will just explain then with the words. Physically, we need police department change. So, Camden, New Jersey, is the worst city in terms of uh, racial violence and crimes. That was number one next to New York. But after changing, community policing system that from regular policing system they changed it into community policing after that that's a 2013 and after that crime rate murder rate dropped from 65 one year to 25 why? This Scott, he's a police officer, chief uh, officer. He said, "We have to let go of all these police officers, and then they rehire all of them by educating them. We are not warriors. We are not controllers. We are basically," he said, "we are servers." His term is a very, actually, that um, moving. From this very tough term, we are kind of a serving carers rather than controlling others. With that kind of education, he changed the whole whole city. Still, it is going very strong. I hope all the cities in the United States adopt this uh, community policing system. Then there is a hope. Police officers work together. They, first of all, they introduce themselves when they are hired to, to the people and they knock the doors and introduce themselves. Very powerful. So they have a friendship with the people. Second level is what I called superordinate vision or superordinate goal that is working together among all different ethnic people. There is a story uh, even though it's long I will briefly say this is a very important experiment. They brought Junior hires into summer camp, divided into two, and the one is the Rattlers, the other one is Eaglers. Can you hear me all right? Okay, if, echoes, if you're not here, just raise your hand, then I will, I will do my best to say again. They divided, and then they created the tension and conflict. So they are fighting, they are raiding each other's camps, destroying everything of enemies, and then this is the experiment. They want to reconcile them. They brought together, and they watched a movie together. They worship together. They have a holy communion together. All kind of stuff. Still, they are fighting with each other. They do not forgive each other, but strangely enough, the water truck, without water, they cannot survive. Had a flat tire from the f- from at foothill, so they had to push it over the hill. One group couldn't push it. Only two groups, they worked together, then they could push. They did. After that, <laughs> they changed. They are not enemies anymore. Wow! Without them, we couldn't have a water. So they became closer. And then there was a water leaking. Lick, they couldn't find. All of them were not trying to find the water leaking. They did. They came together. That's what they, sociologists call superordinate vision. Superordinate means a su- superior vision or goal. So when communities find some kind of a superordinate goals together, then it can really fire up people's cooperations. All ethnic people, there's no no one who is not ethnic. Or we are all ethnic. By the way, before I forget, you are my fiftieth cousin. We are all fiftieth cousins. If you see the blood, it's real. Uh, There's something else I want to tell you, but I will stop there. Um, we have to really know each other and stand under each other. That's understanding. Understanding means to stand under, not above. When you stand under, you can really see value of the person. And the second, second one is this. We have to really do something about our legal system. United States is adopting retributive justice system. That means there is a crime, that I will just read it for you. Retributive justice and then restorative justice. Restorative justice system we have to adopt I will explain what they are. Retributive justice, crime is a violation of a law and state. Violation creates a guilt. Justice requires the state to determine, blame, and impose a pain, that's a punishment. Central focus is offenders getting what they deserve. But restorative justice, this is a Christ principle. Crime is a violation of a people and obligations. Violations create obligations. Justice involves the victims, offenders, community members in the effort to put things right. Central focus, victim needs and offender responsibility for repairing harms. So you do not go to court. If it's a small one, big one too. You bring victims and offenders together, there's a the mediator. So mediate without judges, without lawyers. So they repent of their sins, crimes, to, to the, all the victims. And victims are healed inside. All these criminals, they try to recompense pay back what they did wrong, and the community service. There are many beautiful stories behind this. Colorado is the first state in the United States adopted this system. Ohio is trying. I hope with the senator's help, we can really push this. So I really hope that all the churches are educated about this restorative justice system. United States and Korea, few countries are still using retributive justice. All Europeans, Canadians, they adopted restorative justice system. It drops the cost of legal processes a lot. So government saves a lot of money. State saves a lot of money. Cities saves a lot of money. Why? You don't need all this uh, expensive uh, legalization processes. And last one is a spiritual dimension. You know, 1906, there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the United States. Are you familiar with the Azusa Street revival? Yes. Azusa Street in Los Angeles, there's a one pastor, his name is William Seymour. He prayed, and then Holy Spirit fell upon upon him and all others. He was an African-American pastor. It doesn't matter, white, black, yellow, all gathered together. They need the Holy Spirit. They received the Holy Spirit together. They just gave their lives to evangelize the city and other countries. So, most of them went, to, went out uh, as a missionaries. They gave lives for higher, deeper purpose of their life, lives. I see when Holy Spirit falls upon people, they can speak other people's languages, like Acts chapter 2. We really understand. We really stand under each other. You hear Each other, you listen to each other. So I just pray that your prayer, Senator mentioned prayer, when you pray to God, that has a tremendous power. You and God are majority, you are not one. But on the other hand, as cousins, we have to really help each other so that we can accept each other as we are. And also, we have to really see what we can be, what my friend, my brother, sister can do, can, 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 can do in the future. So always, always we should be futuristic, see beyond what we are now. So racial diversities are not disastrous conditions. God's blessings, so we can see all beauty of different cultures and different ideas, and different traditions, and move toward that direction. In Christ, in the Holy Spirit, we can see other people's destinies. We try to help all the way to, to help them fulfill their destinies. That is a Christian debt community. That's the church. It's not for me. I am here to uphold others, make others truly Christ. So racism is an issue, but it can be a blessing when people change. There's a beautiful story how racists became pastors, From our president, Kent, he was a bodyguard of Martin Luther King Jr., so he had a wonderful story, how this white police officer became UMC pastor. If you are interested, you let me know, I will tell you that story. (laughs) So don't give up. In the Holy Spirit, we have hope. We have a tomorrow together. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Dr. Park, and to our panelists and now we 're going to move to our Director of Mission and Community Outreach, Jenny Vansel, who has a microphone, and she 's going to be our facilitator for questions, both in person and all of those who are tuning in live tonight all across the country they 've been typing in questions as we 've been talking. so Jenny, thank you for helping us. Just raise your hand and.
5: Jenny and our friends. Therefore, she asked what I was going to ask, <laughs> where of like mine. Um, we've done this often. Nothing this unique here at Epworth, but over the throughout our country, for all my life. I'm 83. We've gone over and over this again and again. And I'm so happy that I'm not sitting in, which is a basically all-white church, but I'm sitting with all of us tonight. Um, it's very special to have this happen here at Epworth. The question is, which we, I've well, I'll be honest, I've been the CEO of the YWCA. Therefore, our mission is... One, elimination of racism by whatever means. That was done in the 60s. This country, I feel at my age, is spinning backwards. I'm heartbroken. I am heartbroken. What can we do as a group here? What can my church do here? What do we need to do? I'd love to have some dialogue on that.
2: Was that to a specific specific panelist panelist or everybody?
0: everybody. Go ahead.
2: So uh, this is Charlie again. Uh, That's a great question. Uh, First, I will say if we really knew the bullet point to that, oh my goodness, we would have been shouting and praising the Lord. You know what? The assumption that I always have, first of all, people always think, you know, people are more like my color or, you know, Dr. Andrew and anybody. Like, people think, we just want to talk about this all the time. To tell you the truth, we don't. We want it over. And if it were up to us, it would have been over years ago, before maybe I was even born, because it's, it's so heavy. So we really don't know, but we we also know avoiding is not help deal with this. It is only kept this under the table until we're in a community where we are not ashamed to now, you know, imagine even a different uh, dinner table you know you know i always use you know someone to say uncle tom is, uncle tom is a good man and then he will make some racial racially charged comments and everybody at the table just f- freezes they know uncle tom nobody would want to say anything but also what that conveys to uncle tom is that Everybody's in agreement with me. Well, imagine if one of the people there will say, Uncle Tom, I can't believe you'll say that. The way this family has raised me is different than the words you just say. I am embarrassed. I am ashamed that you of all people say that. There is a way we can respond that is not about shaming Uncle Tom, but also speaking truth to their behavior. So, to my point I said earlier, I I'm, I'm grateful for people who carry the uh, the message Black Lives Matters and they will march. But I'm also grateful for people in a setting of family who will say, you know, I wanna talk to you about what you just said. We also need to address, as much as we're changing the law, we also need to change the culture. There is a culture of racial violence. And we don't address culture with legislation. We address culture with using another element of culture, which is language, and begin to have that dialogue with people in a compassionate way. I love you, Senator, you use that word. You know, compassion, in other words, come, suffer. Come, and passion, the passion of Jesus, right? The suffering of Jesus. In other words, when you say these mean-spirited words... I'm going to suffer with you. I'll make it comfortable for both of us. I am so encouraged. Many of my white colleagues and white friends, they've started having those little conversations about suffering. In other words, they've started, many of you, have started sharing into this suffering. It's us together. We are. Not I think I am. But we are as a community. And when one of us suffers, the body should suffer together. And in that way, we can stand under, understand. I love that. And, and so it, this is one idea, but there are many ways all of us can contribute to this dialogue.
1: You know, if I could add, is this son? Yes, uh, son. <clears throat> Add something to that. You know, we we know we're not going to get the job done in Columbus. You know we're not going to get the job done in Washington because, you know, we just haven't. And unfortunately, over 25 years ago, the Supreme Court ordered the Ohio General Assembly to fix school funding. It was called the DeRolf decision. It was the first time it went to the Supreme Court. We didn't do anything. So they took it to court a second time. And the second time the courts ruled, The Ohio General Assembly had to fix school funding. We didn't do a thing. So it went a third time and a fourth time. Now the funny part is, Bob Cupp, who was one of our Supreme Court justices back in those days, is now Speaker of the House. Okay? He can, as my button said, do something. Okay? He put it on the floor of the House last year. They passed it in the House. They sent it to the Senate. It did nothing. So now he has reintroduced it. It was his bill last year, General Assembly. This year he gave it to two other legislators in the House. They have made it part of the budget. Now the budget is something we just can't ignore. We have to pass the budget or else nothing gets done in the state of Ohio. So we have to pass the budget. The education bill is part of that budget. I would be willing to bet my life that that, when when we finally passed the budget bill this year, that there will be nothing in there about the school funding mechanism. So we know our politicians are just not getting it done and I'm embarrassed to say that because I'm one of them. But trust me, being the Senate Minority Leader of eight in a 33-member Senate is not fun. They don't need our votes for anything. So what what does it come down to? Who can make the difference? And I've said this and I've maintained this for a long time. It's our families, it's the parental units, it's the grandparents who help raise our children, it's our churches. It's our pastors. You know, it wasn't too long of about four years ago, I lost my chief of staff because of sexual harassment. We lost one of our colleagues in the Senate because of sexual harassment. And when the Senate president, I did our end of the year recap, the TV commentator said, I'm going to hit you guys with a hard question right off the bat. Talk about all the sexual harassment in Columbus and why you feel it's okay that you can just pass over it. And we, we don't feel like it's okay to just pass over it. We have to do something. We terminated a state senator. I lost my chief of staff. I said, but let me just say one thing. If everybody in the Ohio General Assembly, all 132 members, all 99 state reps, and all 33 senators had my mom and dad, for their mom and dad, we would not be having
4: this conversation. (laughs) Uh, I fully agree. Can you hear me? Okay, now. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, We have to really pass the educational bill. And education is very important. We have to educate our children. Only one-third of our population, our population, is young people. The future of the United States and other countries, 100% belongs to them. One-third. We have to educate them Education is very important, but educational system should be changed. Presently, we are using retributive education system. In California, Oakland, Santa Rosa, they all adopted restorative education. Three-strike-out kind of education system they used in the past, but now, No. We just changed it. One of my students lost uh, his uh, son's uh, education in high school because he did something wrong. This uh, West Virginia school system kicked him out. He didn't have any place to go. He took my course on this racism, and he made a diagram. I have that diagram. He presented to people, and... The supervisors really liked that. They changed West Virginia education system. No more retributive, no more punishment. But how do we restore everyone? Every person is important, not just majority. So we have to really care for one. The last system I was using is the Jesus system. He left 99 to find one. That lost ship, anybody who are behind, we have to lift that person up. My good friend, you may know this this person, Heidi Baker. She's an amazing person. She is in Mozambique. Her model is this, stop for the one. She has a PhD from Oxford, but she gave that up to serve The community, which doesn't have any education system, but her belief is this: we have to stop for the one. If we stop from there, even though we may not overcome racism in our lifetime, process will be honored by God. Process is very important. I think we we are in spiritual warfare it doesn't end that quickly but faithfully through prayer through education we, we just fight against racism racism is an original sin, according to James Cone black theologian without dealing with that we cannot proclaim salvation so easily don't, in, don't jump into the conclusion of a salvation see the problem Original sin of America is racism.
0: I think we have time for one more question because time has gotten away from us. But if there's one more question and then we'll wrap up.
6: I'm not so much sure that this is a question but an observation. And tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, we all appreciate so much you being here and you bringing us gifts of your spiritual walk. I personally feel that and I'm trying to do this by studying the word of God daily as a result I am changed I will continually change but also it's more of a challenge as we all know in this godless world that we have to be an example we have to be strong we have to go out there and stand for the Lord with love and humility so that when God brings us people we know how to relate to them humbly, and it's one person at a time. So, in fact, you've given me a lot of hope to see your walk and to strengthen mine. Thank you.
0: Uh, I know that our speakers and many of you have other things to do this evening, but they might be able to stay around and answer one or two questions as we're, as we're leaving today. But I want to thank them again. Senator Yuko. Dr. Charlie, Reverend Peaks, Dr. Park. Thank you all. Would you help me give a very warm <laughs> thank you? And we will, we will archive this broadcast at epworth.com. And so if you'd like to tune in or share with your friends or family, please do so because this is very helpful for all of us. And I want to thank each of you for being a part, giving up an hour and a half of your Saturday to come be with us and to tune in as well as be here in person. And I'm just so thankful for Epworth United Methodist Church who are just willing, whenever I come up with an idea, to say, you know what? We've never done that before, but let's try it. Let's do it. Let's be relevant in the community. And so I thank you. Let me give you a thank you. And can we have a closing prayer? My friends, we go now in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, knowing that we are all in this together, that we're all cousins, we're all interrelated We rise and we fall together. And so may we all elevate one another, lift each other, give a hand of kindness and support along the way as together we, with your help, God, truly do make this world, this state, this community a better place for all people. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank
6: you all for being here tonight and God bless you.